This is Shelter in Place, a podcast about embracing the journey in a world forever changed. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Last September, as we were getting ready to embark on the 4,000-mile cross-country pandemic odyssey that was the story behind season two, I borrowed a stack of DVDs from a neighbor. I figured if there were ever a time to use that minivan DVD player, this was it. Ooh, Barbie Nutcracker, my daughter Grace said. This one is good. When did you see that? I said to Grace and shot my husband Nate a look. Don't look at me, he said. I've never shown her that. How about some of these old Disney movies, I suggested. Nate shook his head. Too many helpless princesses. I like princesses, Grace said. Yeah, princesses, Matea added, suddenly interested. What about Bambi? Who's Bambi? All three of my kids said in unison. How have you not seen Bambi? Bambi's a classic. Nate shrugged. I never liked that one anyway. Too sad when the mom dies. The mom dies? Grace cried in horror, even though she still didn't know who Bambi was. Why Bambi die? Matea asked. Now it was Nate's turn to give me a look. For months, Matea had been asking, why Tony die? Ever since I let the kids watch the original West Side Story. Which, I admit, maybe was too soon since Matea was just three at the time. Why Bambi die? Matea said, genuinely interested. Not Bambi, Grace corrected her. Bambi's mom. And all of this before the kids ever clapped eyes on that adorable cartoon deer. Because it seems that if you know anything about Bambi, it's that traumatic hunting scene when Bambi's mother doesn't make it out alive. Which brings me to today's episode, which asks that same question that Matea did. Why Bambi die? Why does Bambi, or his mother, or any deer for that matter, have to die? What I find far more interesting than that question is the observation that all of these years later, the word Bambi still triggers a surge of emotions for me. Why did Bambi's mom have to die? Dear Humans is a four-part documentary that helps us answer that question, and all of the implicit questions beneath it, about who has the right to occupy land, and what our relationship with the natural world can teach us. Dear Humans launches this week, and we're sharing the very first episode in our feed today because it's a great podcast that we hope you'll find incredibly interesting no matter what your feelings are about Bambi. The creator of Dear Humans is someone that we've spent a lot of time with this past year. Eve Bishop is a graduate of our Kasama Collective podcast training program. And while she was in our program, she was part of the teams that produced no less than six episodes, including An Affront to Zeus, our episode that won the Changing the World One Moment at a Time Award at the International Women's Podcast Awards. If you heard last week's episode, then you've already met Eve, and you know that the reason she started working on Dear Humans is that the conflict behind it is one that she's witnessed all her life. When I first heard Eve talk about Dear Humans, I assumed that it would mostly be a podcast about animal rights. But what I've come to appreciate as I've read early scripts and then heard Eve artfully bring those episodes to life is that Dear Humans is a conflict that affects all of us. It's humans versus the natural world, humans versus each other. It touches on issues of wealth disparity, land ownership, disease epidemics, public health, and safety. And yes, 
This first episode does also talk about Bambi. Here's episode one of Dear Humans, Land and Water. On a warm, sunny day in June of 2017, Jane Gill received a text that there had been an accident. Jane is a real estate agent who lives in Sagaponic, New York. But when she's not selling houses, she's saving lives. Animals' lives, that is. Jane volunteers as a wildlife rescuer. On that June day, she received a text that a deer had been hit by a car on the highway in Southampton. She did what she usually does when she receives texts like this. She dropped what she was doing and headed to the scene. The doe had been hit by a car and unfortunately had died, but she was carrying twins and the twins were catapulted basically out of her body. And they were in the middle of the road and they were dead. And so we had to stop the traffic with the police. The police are there. And he was so sensitive, he didn't want to touch them. He said, this is too much for me, I can't handle this. He was in tears. He was in absolute tears. And that sat with me for an entire day. I mean, into that night and the next day. It was, It was just, it's very hard to see uh, an animal get killed like that. What if I told you that the scene Jane just described is one that happens every single day in my community? This is a podcast about deer and people and how in one unique community, these two species are bound in a web of conflict that has been decades in the making. Over the course of this series, I'm going to be digging into the issue of deer overpopulation on the east end of Long Island, New York. You'll be hearing from animal rescuers like Jane. You'll also be hearing from deer hunters, wildlife biologists, medical researchers, and environmental activists. I know what you're thinking. So what? Why should you care about a local conflict that, unless you live on the east end of Long Island, you've probably never heard of? Well, the more I dug into it, the more I realized how these same stories were playing out all across the country. In a very real sense, deer-human interactions are a microcosm of the many challenges our society faces in dealing with the natural world. So yes, this is a story about deer, but it's also a story about people. It's about the environment and our relationship to it. It's about land and who has the right to inhabit space. It's about disease epidemics. And ultimately, it's about conflict. Why we take sides, how opinions get politicized, and what we can learn by listening to one another. I'm Eve Bishop, and this is Dear Humans. I was born and raised in Sag Harbor, New York. Some call this area the East End. Some call it the Hamptons. I call it home. My childhood was colored by my surroundings. I grew up against one of the most stunning backdrops in the country. Everywhere you look on the East End, you see water, the bay to the north and the Atlantic to the east and south. Sag Harbor is an old whaling village peppered with sailboats, bay beaches, and historical landmarks dating back to the Revolutionary War. If you drive 15 minutes south, passing through patches of forest and rolling farmland, you'll hit some of the most pristine ocean beaches in the country. It's a place so beautiful that over the years, it's attracted tons of artists to its sandy shores. Jackson Pollock, Willem de Kooning, Andre Breton, and Winslow Homer are just a few of the greats who made their way over to the East End. 
More recently, the East End has attracted a wealthier, less artistically inclined herd of animals, vacationers. Each summer, the rich and famous make their great migration to the group of towns that is now widely recognized as the Hamptons. The Hamptons is the East Coast's premier summer destination. In the winter, Sag Harbor is a quaint small town with a population of just under 2,000. But in the summer, it's mayhem. One summer when I was in high school, I worked at a boutique on Main Street in Sag Harbor. I helped Will Arnett pick out Crocs for his kids, rang up Jimmy Fallon at the cash register, and held my breath as Simon Cowell grimaced at almost every item in the store. Sag Harbor was a strange and beautiful place to spend the first 18 years of my life. Like the artists who graced our shores decades ago, the East End's natural beauty is always what I appreciated the most about my hometown. It wasn't unusual to wake up to a flock of turkeys in our backyard, come across seals sunbathing on the coastline, and drive past pastures of spotted cows and shiny horses. But the wild animal I came across the most growing up was deer. Deer are everywhere on the East End. And when I say everywhere, I mean everywhere. In the forests, on the beaches, sometimes even swimming in the water. But for every healthy living deer I come across, there are two dead ones, lying lifeless on the side of the road. Deer become roadkill as frequently as squirrels do. Deer crossing signs are as ubiquitous as stop signs. And as I got older, I began to notice it more and more and more. Deer are everywhere, and people are not happy about it. I've always loved animals. As a kid, I could never make it through Bambi. I couldn't bear to watch Bambi's mother die at the hands of hunters. Even today, seeing these lifeless creatures on the side of the road gives me a pit in my stomach. I feel so sorry for these animals, who know no better than to run into a busy road of traffic. But I'm in the minority when it comes to liking deer in Sac Harbor. As I began to research deer and their place on the East End, I discovered a deep, dark conflict. The East End is a community divided, and deer are the unwitting cause of a conflict they didn't create. I got curious about how we got here, so I started digging deeper into the history of deer overpopulation on the East End. As my research continued, I came across newspaper articles and op-eds about deer overpopulation from places all over the country. Communities in Maine and North Carolina and Michigan and Texas are facing the same problem. I began to realize that this local conflict may not be as contained as I thought. Deer overpopulation on the East End is a microcosm of a much larger problem that the wider world is grappling with. An overwhelming imbalance of nature caused by, well, us. So if it isn't the deer's fault, why are they getting the blame? Well, there are plenty of reasons. For one, they cause car collisions. In New York State, Approximately 60 to 70,000 deer vehicle collisions occur each year. And in the U.S. at large, that number is around 1.5 million. Two deer ran out in front of us. Thank God we were in a suburban. My mom missed the first one, but she hit the second one. This is Marissa Estacio. 
She's a deer hunter, and you'll hear a lot more from her in episode four. And I remember looking in the rearview mirror, and I saw the thing spinning in the road. It was dead instantly. Thank God I could cry just thinking about it. It was so upsetting. Deer also cause destruction. Some people don't like them because they ravage their gardens and ornamental plants. But they also cause destruction on a larger level. Their increasing population has led to environmental imbalance on the forest floor. And to top it off, deer are a key player in the spread of Lyme disease and other serious tick-borne illnesses. Just ask Jane, the animal rescuer from the top of the episode. I get bitten every day. Wherever I am, I'm always getting bitten. Somehow this year is the worst year I've ever seen. It's definitely a major issue, especially here on the East End. So we have the perfect storm. People are angry. Dr. H. Bryant Underwood, a research wildlife biologist with the U.S. Geological Survey, told me how deep-seated this conflict is in his work. Many of my colleagues think deer are a pox on the land. They perceive them as sort of the devil incarnate. The conflict over what to do with the deer problem has become about so much more than deer themselves. Half of the people want to see them vaporized. The other half won't let you touch a little hair on their head. That's about people. That has nothing to do with deer. And then there's the issue of animal welfare. People on the East End have drastically different opinions on how much value should be placed on the lives and well-being of other living things. I did see one day, I saw a mother and a fawn, and they both had bullet wounds. So to me, that is really despicable. Like, you're going to kill a mother and a newborn? There's something wrong with you. The more people I spoke to about deer overpopulation, the more complex I realized it was. Every person I spoke to had a unique take on the issue. What caused it, what to do about it, and who's at fault. As time went on, I started to understand that this deer problem isn't really about deer at all. It's about people. Wildlife rescuer Del Cullum, who you'll hear more from in the next episode, summed it up pretty perfectly. Eve, it's absolutely a people problem. And that's why there is such a divide. The divide isn't really between those who like the deer and those who don't. It's between the folks that know something could have been done and the folks that knew that something could have been done and they didn't do it. And really, that's the problem. Next, we're going to find out how we got into this mess in the first place. But first, let's take a quick break. Coming into 2022, I had just two resolutions. Find creative solutions when the work piles up and play more. The best thing that I've done to work toward those resolutions is dancing with Making Waves Studios. Every single time I dance with Making Waves, whether it's online or in person, I leave that class feeling so much better than when I came. It's become one of the best sources of joy in my life. I hope you join me at makingwavestudios.com. White-tailed deer are everywhere on the East End. Most people would agree that the species is overpopulated, both here and in other parts of the country. But before we get into the how and the why, I wanted to get a better understanding of what it actually means for a species to be overpopulated. So I asked Dr. Underwood, 
the wildlife biologist we heard from earlier, what exactly we mean when we talk about overpopulation. What he told me is that a species can be overpopulated from a number of different perspectives. From a human perspective, deer become overpopulated when they start interfering with the kinds of things that we like to do, like drive our cars safely, like plant a garden in our backyard. In other words, deer can be overpopulated from an anthropocentric or human-centered point of view. But deer can also be overpopulated from an ecological standpoint. They can become so overabundant that they impact not only the plants that they are consuming, so that's what we would call the tissue loss of the individual plants, but then they do things like they affect the soil seed bank. All these plants are dumping out seeds to try to perpetuate their own species into the next generation, and they persist in the soil. And if they're not replenished pretty frequently, that soil seed bank becomes depleted. And so over a long period of time, those plants may never be able to recover. According to Dr. Underwood, deer are in fact overpopulated from both a human and ecological standpoint in many parts of the country. That includes the East End. But it hasn't always been that way. In New York, back in the 1930s and 40s, if you saw a deer, it made the headlines of the local newspaper. That's a reality that's hard for me to even imagine. In the late 20th century, Long Island's deer population began to explode. But why? There's several factors. The spike that's been really the major one across the country probably is the suburbanization of America. That's Dr. Jim Bevilacqua, chair of the Shelter Island Deer and Tick Committee. You'll hear me talk about Shelter Island a lot in this series. It's a small island situated between the North and South Forks of Long Island. Dr. Bevilacqua mentioned that suburbanization is one of the main reasons why Long Island's deer population has increased so dramatically. But that's not unique to the East End. This is a problem all over the country, especially on the East Coast. After World War II, America began suburbanizing rapidly. The country's prosperous post-war economy, paired with the increasing cultural importance of the family unit, drove people out of cities and into the suburbs. With this mass migration came a surge in property development in previously undeveloped areas, which completely changed the layout of American landscapes. Deer are edge animals. They love the edge between field and woodland. And property development makes multiple of those edges. And also with suburbanization, you have less people hunting and you also have less predators. People don't like coyotes any more than they like deer sometimes. So we have less predators, we have less hunting, and we have an ideal situation as far as habitat for deer. The east end of Long Island looks a lot different today than it did back when Winslow Homer was painting his landscapes. Starting in the 1970s, property developers ramped up their projects on the east end, building vacation house after vacation house for the increasing market of buyers looking to make the Hamptons their summer getaway. By the late 90s, development was exploding. And these aren't just any old houses we're talking about. These are mega mansions with acres and acres of fenced-off property. That means more space for the rich and famous and dwindling square mileage for their innocent neighbors, the deer. But as Dr. Bevilacqua said, deer are edge animals. 
And while property development poses some serious long-term dangers for the species, suburbanization actually leads to deer population growth. Deer thrive in the wake of human existence. Deer love what we do to the landscape. As soon as you start punching holes into that forest, you allow all that light getting into the ground, you get this incredible regrowth of vegetation comprising of seedlings and saplings of the trees that someday will become the future forest and all of these grasses and forbs and herbs that grow up in the presence of this light. Well, that's deer food. As long as it stays below about seven feet in height, that's all deer food. And that's what has caused the deer population to dramatically increase. Dr. Underwood told me that human interference with Long Island's natural landscape actually goes back much further than the 70s. In fact, we can trace the origins of this issue all the way back to the 19th century. From 1850 through 1910, Long Island's forests were largely cleared due to timber demands. By the beginning of the 20th century, most of the forests on Long Island, and on the East Coast for that matter, had been cut down. Prior to that time, all wildlife was fair game. It was all market hunting. If you could shoot it, you could kill it, you could send it to market on a boat, on a train, whatever. There were no real wildlife harvesting regulations back in those days. So deer were actually almost driven to extinction, believe it or not. But in the late 1800s, game laws started to be implemented. As deer harvesting became increasingly regulated, deer populations increased as well. So the deer population slowly increased right through the early part of the 1900s. And then they hit about 1970 and took off. So from about 1970 on to really early 2000s, it's the whole period of what I would call this anthropogenic deer population eruption that occurred primarily as a function of things that we did to the populations of deer a hundred years ago. It took a hundred years for all of that stuff to finally work its way through the ecology. And now we're basically living with the consequences of all of those things that have transpired before us. The more I spoke with Dr. Underwood, it became clear to me that the development of Long Island is deeply intertwined with our deer issues. I wanted to dig deeper into the history of land development on the East End, but I don't think we can have a real conversation about overdevelopment without hearing from someone whose community has been directly impacted by it for centuries. My name is Shanae Bullock. I am a descendant of the Whalers of the Shinnecock Nation and Montauk people. Shinnecock Nation is the community of people who are indigenous to the East End. Shanae is a very important member of that community. She's an activist who has fought for the preservation of land and water, both on Long Island and in other parts of the country. She also founded Mosketsu Consulting, a cultural and heritage preservation firm that works with government sectors, corporations, and individuals to improve their cultural competency. She basically helps clients make decisions that not only benefit them, but also the indigenous folks impacted by these decisions whose needs are often neglected. Our name, Shinnecock, means people of the stony shore. 
And so we are to be stewards of this stony shore line. And that's where we've been placed by creator. And so it's our inherent obligation to be stewards and take responsibility of the land. For Shanae, that sense of responsibility was instilled in her at a young age. Growing up, she felt protected and watched over by nature. So now, she feels it's her duty to reciprocate that love and care. I was babysat when I was a little girl by the natural world. We have a place called Westwoods. It's our traditional lands. It's just all natural. It's never been developed. And when I was a child, my cousins and I, my aunt would leave us out there from nine to five during the week in the summertime because they had to go to work. And we didn't have a babysitter all the time. We knew how to swim. We knew what berries to eat. You know, they left us with a cooler of water and some sandwiches and chips. But other than that, you had to fend for yourself outdoors. If you got stung by a bee, you had to learn what to do. If you got stung by a jellyfish, you had to look out for sharks. So any person that has ever taken care of you, your mother, your aunt, you have this compassion for them as you get older. You become very territorial and protective. And I think the more and more we can put our children in these bonding experiences with nature, they're going to be very protective over land and water because they grew up this way. And then when they start to see the developmental changes, they're going to feel some kind of way. My mother talks about what Shinnecock used to look like, but she also talks about what the body of water used to look like, and she also talks about what Southampton used to look like, and it does not look anything like it used to at all. And that's enough to anger and, and become sad, and that's also enough for someone to want to do something about it. I think that's my unique connection, but I, I know that that's not unique to just myself or my cousins. And not just unique to Shinnecock or Native peoples. There's people in the town that feel the same way. Development is by no means a new issue for Native people on Long Island. It's a battle they've been facing since colonizers stepped foot on these stony shores. So there was this urge for development. There is this displacement of Native peoples when we didn't have this need for development, but there was this urgent need from the colonists for development. So right then and there, you have going to have a clash. So I think as we talk about overdevelopment here in 2020, when you begin to take away the laws of our way of living, now we are hands behind our back, feet tied, mouth closed, when it comes to upholding this responsibility of stewardship for the land. But what people don't realize is that it's not a native fight. This is a humanitarian fight. We're talking about the pollution of water. We're talking about the erosion of the lands. We're talking about the extinction of ancient medicinal plants. And so when you get rid of these natural things and you also prevent a people that have been there that know how to take care of it. When you prevent them from doing that, you are slowly genociding a whole population. 
And then you can layer on the class status of the Hamptons. You could layer on the race. You could layer on all of these different components. There are summer residents versus year round. And then, of course, the different administrations of political power. But at the end of the day, you're talking about land and you're talking about water. Protecting what's left of our land and water is a universal issue. But there are certain factors that make the situation in the Hamptons unique. I have had the experience of putting my life on the line for clean water and protecting and preserving our land in different parts of the country. The difference is, in the Hamptons, that's where the money starts. You go out here and you go out there and you go here and you go there, South Dakota, Alaska, and all these places. That money is sent there to be developed. In the Hamptons, whatever fee they have to pay, it doesn't matter. They want what they want. Money is never an issue when it comes to what they desire. If the law is something that they don't agree with, they have money to go around that law. They have money to change that law. So I think that that's what is very unique to the overdevelopment issue in Long Island because they will pay those fees, whatever those fees are. It doesn't matter to them. So it's a money issue. The immense amount of wealth on the East End plays into the deer conflict as well. With big money comes big influence. Wealthy newcomers have had the ability to shape the area to fit their needs and desires. And with the Hamptons attracting more and more wealthy vacationers each summer, property developers have become increasingly incentivized to build and build and build. Here's Dr. Underwood again. Eastern Long Island is unique now because there's some pretty expensive homes. It's a very sort of a premium area to live. Home is rich and famous. There's a, a lot of New York City influence out there as well. So there's certainly a, a lot of money around there and a lot of lawyers. So not surprising that deer, of course, are in the middle of this controversy. With more and more land being converted into properties each year, the real estate available for deer is dwindling. But there is one place on the East End that these animals can depend on. Here's Shanae again. There's an overpopulation right now of deer on Shinnecock. You can tell that there's like this sanctuary or safe haven that they feel when they're on Shinnecock. And because of that, there are a lot of deer that come to our particular area because the circle of life has been altered. But even on Shinnecock land, a place that is supposed to be protected, the effects of overdevelopment have manifested in a very real way. I'll give you a little story, and this is what Indians do. We have stories, right? When I was little, I used to swim on my mom's back, and she would swim right there in the Shinnecock Bay. But she knew where all the sandbars were, so she could swim far out and stand up on the sandbars and we would just sit there and we would eat clams and she would just tell me about different things and all that and we would do the same thing and go to another one next thing you know we're so far out that the beach that we came from was far so she would always do it where she 
knew the timing to come back in. And like over the years, we used to try to do the same thing, but I got too heavy to swim on her back. So she would swim by herself. And I never forget there was a day where she was just swimming and just swimming. And I never saw her come up and stand. And it was because those sandbars were gone. (laughs) And so that's terrifying because she could have drowned. And when I think about that, um, I think about the whales and I think about the different types of voiceless relatives, is which we call them, that experience this on land and in the water and they die. If a species or a being has been doing something for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, like as a ritual, right? My mother was doing something that her father did and so forth and so forth and so forth and so forth and so forth. And she was sharing that with me, but it kind of stopped with me. Not because she didn't teach me, but because it was too dangerous. There are birds that nest in the same places that they've been nesting in for thousands of years. Generational nests. And so if there is a time where that particular generation migrates and comes back and that nest isn't there, then what's going to happen to this species of birds? As native people, we are those birds. (laughs) We are my mother swimming and we are human So we have the ability to communicate and speak up for the voiceless. But we're not respected. We don't quite have leadership positions in these areas. And we're barely being heard. So we are the voiceless. Suburbanizing an area like the East End not only entails the building of homes, but also the removal of any possible threats to human safety. Unfortunately, one of those threats that we removed also happened to control the deer population. Here's Dr. Underwood again. Okay, well, what managed deer before we got there? Well, I don't know that we have this completely solved in the biological world, but certainly predators Wolves, in particular, exerted a very strong influence, what we call a top-down regulatory influence on these deer populations that we appreciate now more than we ever have. But these days, you won't find any wolves on Long Island. By 1900, wolf populations in the northeastern United States were extirpated. Having wolves around doesn't bode well for suburban settlement, so humans decided to get rid of them leaving deer populations to thrive in the absence of a natural predator. Will we ever have wolves again in uh, New York State? I would argue that someday we probably will. Will there ever be wolves that will be permitted to live in close proximity of six or eight million people in downstate New York? Probably not. So there's the problem right there. It begs the question, okay, now what do we do? Most of the people I've encountered on the East End know that there's a problem with our local deer population. But that's just about all we can agree on. When it comes to finding ways to address the problem, 
finding common ground gets tricky. The most obvious solution to decreasing the population is hunting. But from both a cultural standpoint and a legal standpoint, it's nearly impossible to make a dent in the population with hunting alone. Culturally, people just aren't as into hunting as they used to be. People are not big on hunting these days in, you know, suburban New York. Here's Dr. Bevilacqua from the Shelter Island Deer and Tick Committee again. He's lived on Shelter Island for about 65 years and is a hunter himself. Over time, he's encountered fewer and fewer hunters like himself on the island. And he's also observed a growing stigma surrounding hunting in the community. Hunting is not in favor in today's society. And even for those who do still hunt, Eastern Long Island has regulations that prevent hunters from making a serious impact on the population. On top of that, there's a decent chunk of the East End's residents who are against hunting for ethical reasons. Do we have the right to hunt a species whose overpopulation we are essentially responsible for? Or do we have an obligation to do so? The problem with deer hunting is the Bambi syndrome. And that is that, you know, deer are awfully cute. This is Dr. David Hirth, a retired professor of wildlife biology at the University of Vermont. You'll be hearing from him more in later episodes. So a lot of people resist the notion of going out and killing one of these beautiful animals. I'll admit, when I initially set out to make this project, I too had what Dr. Hirth calls the Bambi syndrome. Remember, to this day, I still haven't been able to make it through Bambi. I haven't eaten meat in six years, I've always had a soft spot for animals, and I've never hunted or had any interest in hunting. But there's another reason I'm biased when it comes to this conflict. Remember Jane Gill, the animal rescuer whose voice you heard at the top of this episode? Well, she's not just someone I interviewed for the podcast. She's actually an old family friend of mine, and the person who brought me into the world of wildlife in the first place. The first time I visited a wildlife rescue center was with Jane. She's the go-to person I'll call if I see an animal in trouble. She's the very first person I interviewed for this podcast, and a lot of what I knew about the deer situation going into it came from her. So, I'm partial when it comes to this conflict. I'm quick to jump to the deer's defense, and quite frankly... When I started this, I didn't think my opinion would change too much, but I still wanted to hear what people on the other side had to say. I knew that I had to hear their positions before I could truly feel confident in my own. And what I've realized is that this issue is more nuanced and more complicated than I ever could have imagined. During the conversations you'll hear over the course of this series, I tried to better understand how different people in my community understand deer overpopulation. And as a result, I've interrogated my own pre-existing views in a way I've never done before. Some of the things I've learned surprised me, and I think they'll surprise you too. This series takes a deep dive into a local conflict that feels very close to me. But really, I think it's an issue that points to something bigger, maybe even something universal. I've had to think a lot about the nature of humanity, how we relate to other beings, and how we shape the world around us. So, yes, this is a story about deer and the people in my hometown. But it's also a story about what happens when humans are forced to grapple with the consequences of our actions and behaviors. 
So here's how it's going to go. In the next episode, we'll be diving into the world of animal rescue. You'll hear from people like Jane, whose on-the-ground experiences with deer have impacted the way they view the issue of overpopulation. After that, we're going to spend some time talking about tick-borne illnesses like Lyme disease. Tick-borne illnesses can be incredibly damaging to those who suffer from them. And they're often the reason why people who otherwise wouldn't care have strong opinions on the deer. In that episode, I'll be speaking with some incredible researchers who have helped me better understand the often misunderstood role that deer play in the spread of these diseases. And finally, we're going to take a look at hunting. You'll hear my conversations with some of Long Island's best hunters who believe that their sport is the only hope we have for managing deer populations, both here and all around the country. Throughout it all, you're going to hear a lot of different voices and even more opinions. But first, here's a little sneak peek of what you can expect from this series. Everybody's screaming for a solution, but nobody's even trying. I know many people with PhDs who would gladly stand up and argue with me about the role of deer in the transmission of Lyme disease. And that's fine, I'll argue with them, but we're not gonna get very far. We need to hire people. We need to study this. This is an epidemic. We know that hunting works. Over all these years and all the things they've tried, hunting works. I'm not interested in your deer heads on the wall, okay? Tell me you shot a deer so you could have his head hanging on your wall. I have no time for you. I have no respect for you. These folks created the problem. Everybody has their opinion about how it should be dealt with. It makes me want to cry. It's like. How do we undo this? Things are still the same and we don't talk about it as much anymore. I wonder why. Because nobody listened. In all honesty, if people are trying to do this, you gotta do anything and everything you can to win this battle. I'm Eve Bishop, and I'm excited to share more in episode two. Dear humans, thanks for listening. Dear Humans was written, produced, and edited by me, Eve Bishop. All music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Caitlin Kelleher, Kim Trang Tran, Elizabeth Afuso, Ruti Talmore, Lauren Chapman, Jack Bishop, Laura Joyce Davis, Nate Davis, the Shelter in Place Alumni Writing Group, and my Fall 2021 Media Studies Peer Group. Thank you to KSPC 88.7 FM, for allowing me to use the recording studio. And lastly, thank you to the Pomona College Summer Undergraduate Research Fund for helping to make this series possible. You can learn more about me and my work at evebishop.net. You can listen and subscribe to Dear Humans on all human devices, including smartphones and computers. For all of you dear who are listening, Eve has got you covered. Go to the Dear Humans website, and you'll find instructions on how to listen to a podcast. Subscribe to Dear Humans on your podcast player so you don't miss the next three episodes when they come out next month. You can find out more about Eve and her work at evebishop.net. We know that you hear it everywhere, but it really does help us so much if you rate and review both Dear Humans and Shelter in Place, wherever you're listening. 
We know that leaving a review could be tricky for the deer among you with those hooves. So we hope that one outcome of listening to this episode is that some of our deer and human listeners will work together. As always, if you listen to the very end of the episode, you'll hear shelter-in-place outtakes, our little Easter egg to thank you for sticking around. But first, I'd like to thank one of our newest supporters. Judy Vassos, you are one of the people in our neighborhood who makes this place home. Thank you for being a supportive fellow writer, for always asking how I'm doing, and for always making my noisy children feel welcome. I'm so impressed with the work you've done as a writer and historical detective, and I'll include a link to your website in our show notes. If you've appreciated Shelter in Place these past two years, and it's made you feel a little less alone, you can help us to continue this work by supporting us for as little as $5 a month. As always, we'll give you a special personalized shout out at the end of the episode to let you know just how much we appreciate you. Finally, before I go, I wanted to share with you a podcast I've been listening to lately called Wild Precious Life. The host, Anne-Marie Kelly, has become a friend of mine in recent months, and we're currently working on an episode together that I can't wait to share with you. In the meantime, you can hear Anne-Marie's conversations with writers, musicians, entrepreneurs, and wanderers who inspire all of us to reach beyond our divisions and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. I'll include a link to Wild Precious Life in our show notes. The Shelter in Place music was created by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. Additional music and sound effects for this episode come from Storyblocks. Melissa Lent is our project manager. Sarah Edgel is our design director. Nate Davis is our creative director. And as always, I'm your host and executive producer. Until next time, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis. And now if you're still listening, here's a little outtake. Why Bambi die? Maybe he died because the mom died. So these other ideas came. There was a guy and a boy. That boy didn't have its mom anymore. Why Tony die? Ha, 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 ha.